Hi, I'm Isra Kwonga. And I'm Ryan Hunt. And we co-host Stadio, a football podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network. If you like soccer or football, make sure you search for Stadio, a football podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. On April 3rd, the Walt Disney Company will be hosting its annual meeting of shareholders and we need you all to vote for your board. It's important you vote only for Disney's 12 nominees using the white proxy card. Do not vote for the Tryon Group or Blackwell's nominees. Learn more at VoteDisney.com. This episode is brought to you by UGG. Y'all know UGG is a brand that athletes wear all the time in the tunnel and on travel days. Well, I bet you think UGG season is only during the colder months of the year. Oh, contraire. You're wrong. You need to check out the latest spring drop from UGG. They have everything from sandals to clogs. I like the sandals. UGG has you covered for your next spring adventure. Shop the Golden Collection at UGG.com. It is Monday, November 28th. Welcome back. Hope you had a nice break. Today was a big day on the Disney lot in Burbank. Bob Iger made his big triumphant return. The new CEO is the old CEO. Chapek out, Iger in. And if you're interested in how that all went down, we discussed it last week on this very podcast. Today, Iger did a town hall and told employees he's not looking at big acquisitions, as some have speculated. He is keeping the hiring freeze in place amid the company's tough financial situation. And he's not selling the company to Apple. A lot of people said that. That was always a stupid theory to me. He didn't get into the weeds on some of the other bigger problems at Disney that Iger has inherited. Because it's a very different company than the one he gave up three years ago. It's different even from when he officially cut ties with Disney after staying on as executive chairman about a year and a half ago. Lots of problems, some of them industry-wide, some of them are bigger than that, like cost of competing and streaming, the stock market declines, the cable bundle slowly going away. We've discussed all of that on this show. But some problems are very specific to Disney. Movies, sports, streaming. Marvel and Star Wars fatigue, the price gouging at the parks, my favorite topic. Today, we're going to talk about those problems. One, of course, is the succession issue. Iger's got to find someone to take this job that is not Iger. I wrote about that in my Puck newsletter last night, some of the early favorites who might be getting the job. If you're interested in that, go over to Puck.News and sign up. But today, we're going to be talking about the other pressing issues at Disney. We've got Lucas Shaw on the show today from Bloomberg. And we're going to break down the five biggest dilemmas facing the new Disney CEO, Bob Iger. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Lucas Shaw of Bloomberg. Lucas, this is three episodes in a row. You're you're becoming the Johnny Bananas of this podcast. I don't get that reference. He, He is a recurring contestant on The Challenge, uh, the greatest uh, show of all time. Forgive me. I, I will go back. I, I know I need to watch more of that show so I can prepare for our time together. Honestly, you're more like a Wes than a, than a Johnny Bananas, but we don't have to split hairs here. All right, let's talk about Disney. It's been a week since the new CEO, who is the old CEO, who is back on the lot, making things happen. Tweeted a photo this morning. He tweeted a photo. Yeah, he's very excited about being back on the Disney lot. Uh, it's... Still kind of unbelievable to me that there is no one else to run the Walt Disney Company except the previous CEO, who is 71 years old now, uh, that they had to go back to. But this is the bed that he has made, and there are big problems at Disney, very different 
from the Disney that Iger left in 2020 as CEO, although he stayed on for a little while. Um, we're going to talk about some of those problems and what we think Iger might do to try to fix them. The first one I want to talk about is the overall movie business and the fact that that movie business is shrinking in theatrical terms, uh, perhaps growing on digital, on streaming, but unclear whether there's a return on the investment there. Uh, and Disney in particular has a lot at stake because they've been the 800-pound gorilla of the theatrical business for the past decade. They are, you know, in 2019, they had, what was it, seven separate films that grossed a billion dollars or more worldwide. It was like a victory lap. I don't think we'll ever see that again. But they have a huge animation business, or they have in theaters. They've got the tentpole Marvel stuff. Uh, someday soon, maybe, we'll get some Star Wars movies. But it's unclear whether the audiences are going to return to theaters in those same numbers that will generate the kind of box office that Disney needs to justify the spending. Well, what do you make of the back-to-back -back failures of Strange World and Lightyear? Is it just they made a couple of bad movies? Do you think that Disney animation has sort of lost its creative juice? I mean, it's, it's tough because they... They're, they're movies from the pandemic that seemed to me like they were either really good, like I really liked Turning Red. I'm not sure that it was a massive hit, but I thought it was creatively excellent. And Encanto is obviously a smash. And so can you just forgive a couple of total misfires and figure that they'll be back at it next year? Uh, or because at Disney, do you hold them to a higher standard where if they miss more than one movie, they, there's suddenly a problem? So I have thoughts on this because... Obviously, Strange World that came out this past weekend grossed $18.6 for the five-day Thanksgiving holiday. For a movie that cost $180 million, that is just not acceptable. Can't happen. That comes on the heel of Lightyear, which grossed about $220 million worldwide this summer. A Pixar Toy Story spinoff movie, that can't happen either. That was a big flop. And Bob Chapek, when he was CEO, he put the previous three Disney movies, Luca, Soul, and Turning Red, all from Pixar, he put them direct to Disney Plus and didn't even try with theaters during the pandemic. So they do have a problem here, but I don't think it's a quality problem. People like to say when there's more than one flop in a row, oh, you know what? It's a quality problem. I don't think that we can say that yet about Disney. What we can say is that there's a real risk here that during the pandemic, Families got socialized to expect high-quality, first-run animated movies on streaming. And that has not really changed yet because people, even something like Encanto, which was arguably the biggest hit of the year in terms it of... It wasn't a hit until it went to streaming. Exactly. It wasn't a hit until it went to streaming. And nothing really in the family space has worked this year in theaters except, except Minions, which was a franchise and pre-branded and, you know, 13-year-old boys on TikTok were going to see it with all their friends. And Sonic the Hedgehog 2, which was another sequel to a big hit that was, you know, my kid was looking forward to it for months. They haven't been able to break a new animated hit on in theaters since the pandemic. And that may be the scariest thing for Disney because if audiences are trained now to expect it on streaming and not in theaters... They have a big problem. I've had a hard time drawing a, a conclusion specific to, to any 
genre or company when it comes to the movie business right now. Uh, just because I, I take your point that those are both sequels. And I, I think it really is just around making your movie an event. I think if one of those two Disney flops that you mentioned uh, had had a lot of really good critical buzz, if people loved it, if it became something that folks felt they needed to see, you can still break an original project in theaters. And I, I something like Everything Everywhere All at Once gives me a little bit of optimism here, obviously on a much smaller scale, but that's one of those movies where it just gathers momentum over time. Um, and but that's I, I think a that's a eighty million dollar grossing indie movie. That's not the business that Disney is in. Disney wants their big animated tentpole movies to do at least five hundred million, and these movies are not cheap. They cost one hundred eighty, two hundred million dollars, like Lightyear did. They need these movies to do well in theaters, or the whole party doesn't really make sense. Yeah, but I guess I wonder what would happen, say, if if Encanto had come out this year instead of last year. Because last year, everyone was still way more COVID conscious. That's true. The idea of going to a theater, I think, was a lot scarier for people. Now people are more used to it. I, I'm not saying it would be a much bigger hit in theaters, but I don't know that you'd have the same delay in its popularity. All right, that's the first one. Let's go to the second. And this is really a macro issue, but it's very specific to Disney in the sense that they have gone all in on their streaming services over the last few years. And the growth at Disney Plus is stalling. It's still robust. And if this were a year or two ago, the numbers that Disney Plus is putting up would have caused the stock to go up. But that's not the case anymore. And Disney has two problems, stalling growth and this revenue per user number. Because Disney intentionally priced its streaming service, Disney Plus, lower than it could have in order to get scale. Now they've got the problem in that they are the cheapest option out there in many cases, and they've got to raise revenue. Iger knows that. What's he going to do? Well, on the revenue per user, he's going to go go ahead with the price increase that that Bob Chapek ordered up, where the kind of the ad free version of Disney Plus is now going to be three dollars more expensive than it used to be, four dollars more expensive than what it debuted at. Uh, you know, Disney deliberately underpriced to sign up a bunch of people and then figured they could keep raising prices. It's very similar to what Netflix did at the beginning of its trajectory. Um, given the loyalty of of the kind of the Disney super fans, it feels like a, a winning strategy. But I think the challenge for them is is the rising ARPU and subscriber growth sort of opposites. They clash with one another. It's it's very hard to keep signing up a bunch of new people if it's getting more and more expensive. And so Disney's at this inflection point right now where they're trying to make Disney Plus more appealing to a, a, a wider group of people. It's why there's talk of them folding in Hulu. It's why there's talk of them bringing in kind of more adult-oriented programming and not just the family stuff. Um, but you're doing that at the same time that you're making it more expensive. Now, the argument, I guess, is is if there's more for people to, to watch in it, then they should be willing to pay more. Uh, but but it's certainly a tough argument to make when a lot of the comp competition is, is going in the other direction. And they do have this ad tier where if you're price sensitive, you can stay at $8. You just have to have ads. And they got to get that number up, though, because it's less than $4 worldwide, the Disney Plus revenue per user. And that's because... Something like 35 or 40% of their customer base is in India, and people in India average paying like a dollar a month. But even if they got rid of India, it is below their rivals. Well, it's below their rivals because they don't give you as much. I mean, Disney Plus is a very limited offering. I, I don't speak for yourself, man. My, it's a utility in my house. I mean, yes. I, if you have children, you have to have it. 
it's vital for a very specific segment of the population. You will never be dropping it, which is why you will pay the higher price. Yes. And, but remember that stat that they gave out that there are more adults without children that subscribe to Disney Plus than people with children? They actually said that on one of the earnings calls. I couldn't believe that stat. It's got to be all the Marvel super fans. But are there that many? Are there more Marvel super fans than there are people with children? <laughs> I know birth rates are going down, but yeah, I don't, I don't know. I'm not sure what the solution is for them besides raising the prices and and eventually and trying to to walk the line with with broadening out the programming. I think it's it's related to the big question of what the heck does does Bob Iger do with Hulu? Right. What do you think he's going to do with Hulu? I mean, I, he's got to want to buy out Comcast if they're thirty percent. I, I think I, if I'm remembering this correctly, someone had told me that when that, that when he did when Bob Iger did, did the deal with Fox to buy a bunch of their movie and TV assets, there was a world in which he was actually willing to not take Fox's stake in Hulu because mm. it was more about the studio and 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 the creativity there and the library right. they were getting. They could recreate distribution. They couldn't recreate the IP or the library. Correct. And his his philosophy has always been about buying the IP. But now it feels obvious that he's got to consolidate control and 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 put it all under one. Or he sells Hulu to someone else, uses all that money to, you know, fund all these other initiatives. Um, it depends a little bit. He said during during a, a, a town hall Monday that he's not interested in in large scale acquisitions. Um, so I'll be curious what that what Hulu sort of where Hulu fits into that. I tended to say previously that he, Iger was going to buy up Hulu as quickly as he can and just grow this din- Disney bundle or consolidate Hulu with Disney Plus and just make it a tile. I wonder now if he might consider selling it to Comcast. Because if you look at the situation Comcast is in, they're pretty desperate in streaming. Peacock is clearly not working. 15 million subscribers, it's US only, although Hulu is also US only. And I think if you're Iger, you look at what the Hulu assets are, and it's mostly being powered by shows and library that could be repurposed elsewhere and that Disney owns or has long licenses on. So if you can get a big price for the distribution platform and sell it off to someone like Comcast, who objectively needs that kind of scale and the number of subscribers that Hulu can bring it, at least in the beginning, why not do that and use the money elsewhere? There's a version of it that makes sense. He would just have to be very comfortable with I mean, it would it would cause an immediate hit to the subscriber number, right? Right. Um, they'd be giving up one of the only decent live TV services, and you'd have to figure out how to un. There's a lot of rights to unwind, right? I was like going to Com- say there's no way Comcast would take that asset unless it came with long license deals for some of the premier content, which then, you know, then makes the content less valuable for Disney to repurpose elsewhere. Yep. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight Saving Time is back. Wait, wasn't that a movie from 2009? Okay, anyway, I do love more hours of daylight. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. 
four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash town. Tap the banner to learn more. All right, let's go on to three. Um, I think the one of the biggest issues creatively that Iger is going to have to tackle is this notion of Marvel Star Wars fatigue on streaming. And first, do you agree that there is Marvel and Star Wars fatigue? No. You don't. You think, pump them out fast as you can. Everybody's going to watch them. There's no horizon on this stuff. No, I don't, I don't, I don't agree with that sentiment. I just think we, we bring up this idea of, of Marvel fatigue every couple of years, whenever there's a movie that doesn't work, whenever there's something. We, because uh, if, if you are not an ardent fan of the, this thing, you're just like waiting for the culture to move on a little bit so that we can diversify some of our big budget storytelling. But there's just no indication in the marketplace that people are tired of, of Marvel. The, the movies are still doing well. The TV shows are still doing well. Yes, some of them aren't doing quite as well. And I do think that Kevin Feige, the head of Marvel, is now stretched pretty thin trying to overlook so many different projects. And so is it... But, but the the... I don't think that's a sign of fatigue. I think it's possible that the the creative quality in some cases isn't as good as it used to be. But you know, we've got this show Andor that that just wrapped that people well, that's think Star is, Wars. No, I know, but it's related. That people it is that but people think is maybe the best Star Wars show ever made. It's also the lowest viewed. Correct. Correct. But uh, I don't think that that's a sign of fatigue. I think it's that it was a kind of it was not designed for the masses. That's true. And, I, and my colleague at Puck, Julia Alexander, wrote a piece about this, where basically saying, yeah, it, it, it's it sucks that it's not getting the viewership that Obi Wan Kenobi did, but for the long term health of the Star Wars brand, Andor is key. They had to show that they could do something interesting and innovative in this world in order for people to be interested going forward. And I do agree with that. I mean, me as a disgruntled Star Wars fan, listeners of this pod know that. I I was pleasantly surprised by Andor, and it makes me excited that there is the ability to do something interesting at Lucasfilm still. Yeah, this is your this is your hobby horse. It, it really you will is. not you will not you will not be satisfied until <laughs> Kathleen Kennedy is is a. Uh, <laughs> I have nothing against her personally. She's a, a, a lovely person. I just uh, I I have my issues with Star Wars, and we still don't know what the next movie is going to be. But so you you think fatigue is an issue? I do. I do think not a huge issue, but Marvel. You know, if you go in the fan space, and I know that you and I both try to avoid that world, but it does pop up and it does matter. The fans of the Phase Four Marvel movies they they've noticed. They've noticed the cinema scores are not universally great anymore with all these movies. They have noticed that some of these Marvel shows are not good. Some of them are good, and. Some of that is a function just of the volume. If you produce so much, you're going to have more that aren't hitting the mark. But I think some of it is we're now 15 years into the MCU. And, you know, it's tough. We had Nate Moore on this show at Marvel talking about this. It's really tough to anticipate what the fans are going to want before they want it and to execute for this long of a period. We are in uncharted territory in terms of film franchises. No film franchise has ever gone 30 movies in a row. And we're now into this phase of Marvel where they've got to figure out how to keep this fresh because villain of the week 
and you know, hero dropping down in his pose and saving the day, like that's not going to cut it forever. Yeah, I think you're right to identify the the volume as the biggest issue. I just think it's been hard for you know, if you have this property that you've already been mining for years and then you try to increase the amount of storytelling that you're you're producing from it, it just it's a recipe for for reduced quality in some cases and it means that you might have a Marvel show or a Marvel movie every year that are great but you're also going to have some stinkers and that eventually hurts the brand. I, but I, I think there is time to sort of assess what they're doing. Um, and it also doesn't change the fact that there is still a tremendous amount of interest in that property. Um, it just It's just that I don't think every, every one they release is going to be a hit anymore. We'll see how long creatively they can keep it up. All right, let's go to the parks. We didn't, hold on, we didn't talk about the single biggest streaming issue that he has. What? He has to figure out what to do about sports on the internet. Oh, right. Sports, as you might as you might know, <laughs> sports is really expensive to air, and it's really the only thing that anyone is watching on linear TV. These numbers from Thanksgiving weekend were insane. 42 million people watched the Giants-Cowboys game on Thanksgiving. Most viewed regular season NFL game of all time in a and cable Michigan, environment. Michigan, Michigan, Ohio State, it was on Fox. Apologies to ESPN, but that was 18 million people. Even the World Cup got... The U.S.-England match got almost 15 million people. Right. No, it did get 15. It did, and that was another record. So clearly people are watching sports on linear TV, but for ESPN, those rights are so expensive, and there is a big contingent of people that say Disney should just cut bait, sell ESPN. Why be a renter of rights when you could put that money into owning things forever? Uh, where do you stand? I don't think we've talked about this on the show. Where do you stand we, on the we, ESPN We have class? talked about it, but I remain anti-selling ESPN, largely because I just think it's the strongest brand in sports and that there's there, if anyone's going to figure out the value for sports on the internet, it's going to be ESPN. And it generates cash flow that the company really needs to fund everything else. So I, I agree with you. And the question, though, is not what we think. It's what Iger thinks. And John Skipper, who used to run ESPN, he's going to come on the show soon, but he did an interview uh, in the last couple of days in which he said he doesn't think Iger is going to sell it. And he thinks it's going to, sports on ESPN are going to be the same and they are going to just figure out how to gradually transition over to ESPN+. Plus. Yeah, it's just a question of, uh, I agree with John, and obviously he's more of an, of an expert than, than either of us. But the question is how, right? So they have their next, and they have the NBA deal as sort of the next big rights deal coming up. What rights can can Bob Iger convince Adam Silver, the commissioner of the NBA, to give ESPN for streaming? How does he how does he separate the rights he gets for streaming and for for linear TV at the same time that the NBA clearly wants to bring in a third buyer, someone like an Apple or an Amazon? I mentioned that to someone who's very smart on these issues and it because it seems easy to me. Just you know, Adam Silver and Bob Iger are friends. Just say, listen, we're going to do this deal. We're going to re-up the NBA, but we want some games on ESPN+. Plus. Seems easy. Now, this person who is very involved in rights deals said to me it's not that easy because they want to window it off and sell it to another bidder to get more companies invested in the success of the NBA. And it's hard for companies to do both. It's hard to plug your linear package and try to get people to tune in to your linear games while also simultaneously trying to plug your digital package. Now, I don't quite understand that because to me, it seems pretty simple. If you've got Lakers Warriors on a Friday night, you say, 
Everybody, go over to ESPN Plus for the big Sunday night game. You're going to get to see, you know, Knicks OKC. Seems pretty easy, but apparently it's more complicated than I think. I think it's more complicated, but uh, but yeah, I'm I'm still I'm I'm bracing myself for your Parks rant. All right, let's go to the Parks rant because it's okay. I am not going to rant about my personal experience, even though I find the price gouging that has occurred under Bob Chapek at the parks to be pretty off-putting, but let's have a rational and uh, high-level conversation about this. If you are Bob Iger coming into a situation in which you have many, many struggling businesses and you have one business that is absolutely going through the roof right now with the exception of China, which is closed due to COVID, I don't know what he's going to do with this because so many of the changes that Chapek made from increasing prices to get in to the $30 upcharge for Genie Plus to the $30 upcharge for certain rides. So many, so much of that has been so unpopular with the Disney hardcore fans, but it has raised the bottom line and contributed to the overall company's ability to spend on streaming and other things. So if you're Iger, do you come in here and try to save the brand or save the money. I mean, you you got to try to do both. Well, how do you do both? I'm I'm the wrong person to ask about this. I apologize. I don't have the <laughs> I don't have the answers for how Bob Bob Iger should run his theme parks division. But you you don't want to suddenly cut costs and hit the revenue at the theme parks. Um. So you ju- you you find a way to communicate with and reassure your most ardent fans and figure that they'll eventually get over it. I have to imagine. I think there are gestures. There are gestures that you can make that will go a long way towards solving this problem. And, you know, Chapek was such a villain, Um, even though weirdly the guy who actually runs the parks division, this guy, Josh DeMauro, is like considered a celebrity in the Disney parks community. They love him. And he's out there on Instagram talking to everybody. It was Chapek they didn't like because they blamed him for these price increases and the sort of subtle degradation of certain things at the park that people that, that, that even people though liked. he'd been running the parks previously and they loved the parks yes because the perception was that he had been lying in wait and that Iger had the ability to turn all these knobs to price gouge people and he didn't let chapek do that and the second that chapek got control himself he squeezed people I think there are gestures you can make. Like the one of the big things, I don't want to get too much into the weeds on it, but is this annual pass thing. What Disney did after COVID is they got rid of annual passes. So these people who live in Garden Grove or Anaheim that would buy their annual pass and literally go to Disneyland every weekend, that ended. And they now had a reservation system. They couldn't get the dates they wanted. So it was, and that was because they wanted to prevent people from going to Disneyland over and over again and not spending money and letting more of the people that come from far away and go to Disneyland and spend all their money to get into the park. I think Iger could make a gesture by reinstating that or doing it on a limited basis or something that will allow the hardest core fans to feel like they're getting a little bit of a break. Um, He could also do things like ending upcharges for certain rides uh, or certain times of the day or only doing it at the most crowded times of the year. Uh, there are things he could do. And I think he will probably recognize that Iger loves to be loved, right? He likes the fact that the Disney brand is so beloved. He always thinks about the Disney brand that way. And I think by doing something small 
and and something that will go over well with the core fans, he will get a lot of mileage out of that. Are we going to get a your, your five-point plan to fix the Disney parks? Uh, I'm working on it now. By the way, you joke, but I'm going to give you a little quiz. How much would you say a one-day park hopper ticket is to Disneyland in, in California right now on a holiday? Uh, 250 Wow, 244 Now, that is without Genie Plus, which you need to reserve ride times, and without individual upcharges on certain rides like Star Wars and the Cars ride. So with both of those, it's you're push you're over 300 bucks for a day. Just so we're clear, I was not I was not being snarky about the plan. I'm waiting for a newsletter where you spell out <laughs> your plan to fix the Disney parks. I think people would read it. All right. Thank you, Lucas. We will talk more about Disney, I'm sure, in the future. Thanks, Matt. All right, we are back with the call sheet. Let's talk about the weekend, the movie-going weekend, because it was pretty pathetic in theaters. Nothing really worked in theaters. Uh, Wakanda Forever was the top grocer, but as we mentioned on the on the pod, Strange World flopped. Um, the Steven Spielberg film, The Fablemans, didn't really do much, about $3 million. Uh, The Chalamet cannibalism movie. Turns out people don't want to watch a movie about cannibalism with their family on Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, that movie, flop, bones and all. And a couple others, Devotion, the $90 million military movie didn't work, even though it had Glenn Powell. Uh, people could kind of tell that it wasn't Top Gun. It was missing something. I, you can tell what that was, that it was missing. Maybe Tom Cruise. Um, but the one movie that did do well is a movie you and I both seen, Knives Out 2, the uh, Glass Onion and Knives Out Mystery. It grossed about $13 million this weekend in about 650 theaters. I said 1,000 on last week's pod, but it actually ended up being less. And that's a very good number for that few of screens. And for the week-long experiment that Netflix did in theaters, it's going to gross about $15 million. And your prediction, I'm guessing, is that despite the the successful performance of this movie and its limited release, Netflix is not going to do anything about it, not going to change their tune, and this doesn't matter. That is exactly right. My prediction is that Netflix does not give a shit about theatrical grosses. They just don't. Do you think everybody at Netflix agrees no, with that No, no, I know they don't. I've talked to many people there that don't agree, that say, you know what? If we put this movie in theaters for a month and then put it on Netflix, we probably could have made $200, $300 million on the release, and then it would have juiced interest in the movie. It wouldn't have prevented people from seeing it. It would have actually juiced interest. People would have seen it again. They would have told their friends about it. They would have seen, you know, if they went out with their buddy, they would have had the entire family watch it. Now, that is the big speculation. We don't know what the impact of that is. We've heard numbers from people like David Zasloff at Warner Brothers Discovery, who says that, you know, the Batman got huge numbers on HBO Max after being in theaters for 45 days. We've heard anecdotally from some of these studios that having a robust theatrical release can help a, a, a studio movie when it goes to streaming quickly. But Netflix just does not want that. They want people to watch movies. Ted Sarando said most people watch movies at home. We are an at-home movie company. And they did this as an experiment. And because the filmmaker, Ryan Johnson, really wanted it. And the theater people the theater owners were pissed about this they saw the numbers that knives out 2 was doing 
in theaters this weekend. And they're like, can you only imagine if Netflix had put this movie in 3,800 theaters, which is what the original was in, it's a, it's a lot of money left on the table for Netflix. Well, you said there are people inside Netflix who disagree with Netflix's kind of stubbornness about this. How? Which people? The movie people. The movie people want Netflix to do, generally speaking, the movie people want Netflix to do more movies in theaters and for more times. Because those are the executives that have to deal with the filmmakers. The filmmakers all want a theatrical release. Some just want the paycheck, whatever. But someone like Ryan Johnson would have loved to have a full theatrical release for Glass Onion. Now, he took $450 million from Netflix to make two Knives Out sequels, so he doesn't really get to say what they do with those movies, but he pushed them and his agency pushed them to do a theatrical release. They said, okay, we'll do a week. We'll do a stunt. We'll do an experiment. And for the first time, the three largest theater chains agreed to play a Netflix movie because they've boycotted Netflix movies because they go straight to streaming as well as going in theaters. They agreed to this one-week experiment a month out from the Netflix drop, and it did well. The, the data is now there that these movies can open if they are windowed for a month in theaters, but Netflix only did it for a week. And Netflix doesn't even seem to want the money. That's the funny thing is like, People tell them, oh, yeah, this movie could have done $200, $300 million. They're like, yeah, we're good. Well, because they'd rather have 15 to 20 million people signing up. Of course. For and they believe that the ultimate value proposition is to get the most people to sign up for Netflix as possible. And it was worth it to them to spend $450 million to pursue that with two Knives Out sequels. And that's what and that's what Netflix is needing badly is they want franchises. And this was a theatrical franchise that was a huge hit in 2019 that they brought over to Netflix. And now... They've got it, and I, but I don't know that that piece of it is correct. We still don't know if putting a movie in theaters helps or hurts subscriber acquisition and churn when it comes to when it drops on the streaming service. Netflix must know something that I don't that says we, we don't want to do this. You know, We will put it in theaters if we have to, but we don't want to do this. Um, I just, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question, and I don't think anyone really does. All right, that's the show for today. We will be back on Wednesday. And I want to thank Lucas Shaw of Bloomberg. I want to thank producer Craig Rollback. And I want to thank you. Bye-bye. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.